Well, we sure can be grateful for a Lord that has done so much for us and a team that leads us in worship that way. Thank you, Pastor Doug and team, for all of that. I want to direct your attention um, to Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open there. And I'll just set the stage this way. I want to talk for a minute about California. And it's not a reference to one of the Super Bowl teams. <laughs> La-di-da and all that, as Pastor Sam says, right? But I do want to make a, a, make a statement here. Living in California is risky business. On the one hand, California boasts, and rightly so, some of the most beautiful scenery our country can offer. But on the other hand, when the weather turns violent, that beauty can quickly turn into a nightmare. You may be thinking at this point that I am vaguely referring to earthquakes, but as it turns out, the biggest threat to California may be a storm. Now, in the winter of 1861, a major storm hit California with unrelenting snow and rain over a period of 43 unbroken days. The whole state was affected by a super atmospheric river. It's actually a thing carrying water from the Pacific Ocean and dumping it in the northern and then the southern parts of the state. History records that much of the central valley of California became an inland sea, covering an area about 300 miles long by about 20 miles wide with depths up to 30 feet. Towns, farms, and ranches were virtually wiped off the map. And an estimated 200,000 of the state's 800,000 cattle were drowned in the floodwaters. At that time, Los Angeles was submerged in four feet of water over an area of 18 miles wide. And the one bright spot was the entire state's population at the time was 500,000, resulting in relatively few deaths. Now, what's interesting is scientists have studied that flood and they've examined silt levels down in the earth, and they have discovered that this kind of storm has occurred in California around 10 times over the past 1,600 years. And the threat mongers and the catastrophists out there say that California is overdue for another storm of this magnitude at any time. Now, I'm not up here preaching about climate threat and all of that today, don't worry. But it's interesting to study that and to read how people responded. There were people who were caught off guard who had no idea that was coming. The farmers who previously had been praying that rain would come to alleviate the drought weren't expecting 43 days of unrelenting rain. And as I looked back in the history and saw that there was really only one house that survived the floods in that region. And the only way it did was by opening up all the doors and letting the floodwaters rush through. And the foundation was strong enough to keep the house there when all of the water dried up. But friends, would you imagine for a moment being stuck in a storm like that? Maybe you're saying no, because I'm in Tennessee and that's the reason I'm not in California. (laughs) I want to tighten the screws a little bit this morning where we might have a tendency to look at California negatively by taking us to Matthew chapter 7 because Jesus speaks of a storm that we need to read about today and I want to point that out to you now. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. 
The words of our Lord are these. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. These are the words of our Lord. Join me as I pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the words that you have spoken. Lord, I am not sufficient to deliver these words in my own power this morning. And I pray that by your spirit, you would speak through these words of our Lord to the people here this morning, your people, and some here who may not know you. I pray that your words in power would transform us so that we would know of a certainty by the time we leave that we're ready for the storm and that we are built on the firm foundation of Christ. Be with us, Lord. Help us as we give our attention now to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus warns us in this text that a storm is coming. And I want to do my best this morning to help you to consider that storm and to prepare for it so that you are ready to survive it. And the title of the sermon this morning is Surviving the Storm. Now, the tale Jesus tells us is of two builders, two houses, two foundations, but the same storm hits them both. And the aftermath for the one is blessed safety, and the aftermath for the other is devastating destruction and death. So which one are you this morning? How can you know where you stand? We're going to examine this parable in depth by looking at the builders, and we're going to do a little bit of courageous work in facing the storm before I apply it to you and help you wherever you might be this morning by the Spirit's power. So look at this point this morning. The reality is everyone is building a house. Everyone is building a house. Now, this parable follows what Pastor Sam preached to us last week. And he said that last week, he preached on the scariest words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. And I agree. As he preached that message, it hit me. And I feel that I am safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus. But those words, as you consider them, we were drawn to consider whether the things that we do are the basis of our salvation rather than resting on Christ alone. Are we considering you know, the things that we do as evidence or the basis for our salvation? Or is Christ himself the basis of our salvation? When we come to this text today, it switches just a little bit. You might recall that those who stood before Jesus said, Lord, didn't we do many things in your name? In this text, Jesus does not say, you did these things, but you are not mine. 
In this case, he focuses on those who hear. The focus is on people who are doing what you're doing right now, listening to the word of God preached, particularly this sermon that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says there are some who hear, and they hear a lot, but it's like building a house, he says, on sand if you hear what he says, but you never change. You never respond. You never obey. Jesus warns that those are the two outcomes and that in these builders, the point is not that these builders are so different at face value. And it's very likely that Jesus is describing two houses that are being built in the same region. After all, they are both accosted by the same storm. And I think what Jesus is doing as he brings up a house, he's describing the life that you and I will build, the life that you and I will choose to live as a result of hearing and taking in his words. What will we do with it? How will we respond? I want to look at some similarities between these two builders in this parable that Jesus tells, because I think that those similarities will show us that sometimes, even in the same Christian environments, you and I might be rubbing shoulders together, but one may be a follower of Jesus and the other only think that he or she is a follower of Jesus. I don't say this myself to scare you, but I think Jesus wants us to reckon with the reality of what might be taking place in our own hearts as we hear this parable. I'll read again verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. He leaves those two options in front of you. And that's what I will do right now and focus on a few similarities of what I think the Lord is focusing on here. Here are some similarities that I think exist right now, even here at West Park, among all of you. And I'm not making a judgment right now about who is saved or who is not saved. I can't do that. Only the Lord knows. But it's possible here that we have people who are both in the church right now. That's a similarity. Both are in the church. There's a, an attraction to Christianity that many people have for what Christianity and the community of God's people can give them. There's love here. There's acceptance even when we sin and fail. So you can find people in the church who are there for all kinds of reasons. And both are even attracted to good preaching and teaching. You'll find people who come and they love preaching and teaching. They love to take it in. This is true of both believers and non-believers, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Both are looking for help through life's troubles and temptations. This is a reason that many people come into the church. The church offers them hope and help, and they come in, and to be honest, it's very easy to learn the lingo. If you listen to enough sermons, if you listen to enough teaching, you can know how to speak the Christian language. And it actually becomes second nature to you after some practice. 
And that by implementing some of those Christian things you hear, it actually makes your life a bit easier. It makes life a bit better. And I've seen many people come into the church. Maybe their, their marriages are falling apart. Maybe their children have rebelled and are causing trouble. Maybe their health has crashed and they need hope and help. And they come to the church and they find answers, but it's possible to find answers and still miss Christ and responding to his lordship and placing him first. I can say that both want to live good lives. This is true of believers and unbelievers. They come and they feel comfortable in the community of Christianity because it helps them to live good lives. They, they don't want a life that's destroyed. They don't want marriages that break. They don't want families that fall apart. They don't want careers that explode. They find some comfort in the community of Christianity. And it helps them to live good lives. And certainly both want to go to heaven. This is true too. Who wants to go to hell? Now maybe people will joke about it and they'll tell their buddies, I'll see you in hell. And they'll laugh about that and they think it's funny that hell is a place where you can party. But hell is a place of destruction, death, and all of the, the tales of hell that Jesus tells, and he speaks of hell much more than he speaks of heaven, warns people by strong metaphors that it's a place where worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. And if those are the metaphors, then think about how terrible the reality is. Nobody wants to go there. And so we can think then about, well, certainly I want to go to heaven. These things are true of both genuine Christians and self-deceived professing Christians. Jesus knows this. He's very concerned for his people that they settle this issue. What is the issue? The issue is that we foolishly settle for the benefits of Christianity, but we totally miss Christ in obedience to his word. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Just hanging out with my people just being a part of the crowd is not going to save you. Hanging out in the midst of the Christian culture and knowing the language is not assurance of your salvation. Because just as he said already in Matthew 7, that unless you come to that narrow gate and you enter into it by yourself, alone, having brought nothing in, but going to the cross yourself and bowing before the Lord of the Sermon on the Mount. You have no assurance. This message is addressed to you as an individual, and you as an individual are compelled to consider what you are building on right now, whether it be sand or rock. And that's the one life-preserving difference that Jesus talks about in this parable. If you will look again, Jesus says in verse 24 that the one who builds on the rock is a wise man and the one who builds on the sand is a foolish man. And here is what we learn. The fool is the one who hears the words of Jesus but doesn't obey him. And the wise hears the words of Jesus and obeys. There's a difference here. 
And I need to clarify that Jesus is not saying at this point that it's necessary to obey him in order to earn our salvation. That is not the case at all. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But as James the Apostle says in his letter, faith without works is dead faith. He's saying that when we have true faith, the true faith translates into active obedience because true faith regards we have one Lord, we have one Savior, and we follow that Savior and Lord, whatever he says. And our lives, though imperfect, are a reflection of that obedience, that obedience that comes from a heart that is transformed by the Lord's grace. Jesus says that is a wise person who interacts with his word and in humility pleads with the Lord to change him or her. That's what takes place in the wise. The fool appreciates the words of Jesus, finds them compelling, but goes no farther than that, makes no provision to change his or her life, does not ask questions to help dig into the heart of the issue and how Jesus might want them to change. The Apostle James talks about this in his letter, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. You'll see that on the screen. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who, in, who looks intensely at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now there is great danger in thinking you are safe and righteous, but in reality you are in danger because the truth is you never obey the word of Christ. You look at it, you appreciate it, you esteem Jesus highly, but it doesn't translate into your life and things don't change. Jesus tells us through James a warning, don't deceive yourselves. Now Chuck Swindoll years ago illustrated this humorously in his book, Improving Your Serve. Let me just summarize his example. He says, let's pretend that a man owns a company and he wants to expand his company's reach. So here's what he does. He gets a, a person that he can train and says, listen, I'm gonna go over to Europe. I'm gonna open up a branch of the company over there. I'm gonna be gone for several months. While I'm gone, here are my expectations for you. I want you to do these things because I want the company here to grow just like it grows overseas. And so the boss goes over to Europe, moves his family over there. And what he does is he writes a bunch of letters and sends them back to the guy in the company. And he figures, the boss does, all right, my letters are getting there and there's a receipt of letters so I know the guy's getting them. Certainly he's doing the things in the company that I'm telling him to do. So after a few months, the boss comes back and he sees that his company is 
in awful shape. I mean, the weeds are growing. There's a few broken windows down on the first floor. He goes in, sees the, the receptionist, you know, chewing bum and gum and blowing bubbles. Um, it's, here's the, the dated example that Chuck Swindoll gave, listening to her favorite disco station on the radio station. <laughs> this, this is a, a deep cut here. So as the boss goes through the company, I mean, people are everywhere doing things that have nothing to do with the company, nothing to do with the values that he said, nothing to do with the orders that he gave. And so finally, he finds the guy that he set to be the manager. So he goes down and he finds the guy and he asks him, what in the world is going on, man? And the manager responds, what do you mean? And so the boss says, well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? And the guy says, letters? Oh, yeah, sure. We got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have had letter study every Friday night since you left. We have even divided all the personnel into small groups and discussed many of the things you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and paragraphs. One or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay, okay, you got my letters. You studied them and meditated on them, discussed them, and even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Do? Uh, we didn't do anything about them. And in this passage, this is me talking to you now, out of the illustration, Jesus says that people will say to him, like he did in the passage last week, didn't we do great things in your name? And Jesus will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. And according to this parable about the builders, there will be many who come to Jesus and say, didn't we hear your word preached week after week after week? Wasn't I in a community group? Didn't I go through like a thousand reap guides? That's what I thought when I thought about writing them and with the team who writes them, when we do these things, are we recognizing these are the words of Christ. They are not to be appreciated alone. They are not just to be esteemed. They are be, to be obeyed. This is the weight of the parable. And it's the weight of what Jesus is saying to us. And he, in terror to an individual someday, may say to one who said, didn't I hear your word preached week after week? Wasn't I a part of the church? Didn't I sit there and appreciate all the things that were said? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I don't know you. That is terrifying. Now, reading these words in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to ask, have you this week, in preparation to come, or at any point in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've studied the Scripture, recognized that these words are spoken to challenge, to comfort, and to change you. Starting with the beginning where Jesus talked about the Beatitudes. I think this ending of the Sermon on the Mount, these are the last words Jesus says, reflect back on the beginning. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's your first thing to respond to when you hear the sermon preached and when you encounter these words of Jesus. Has there been a brokenness in you? 
Have you responded to the Lord Jesus Christ and his words with a recognition when he speaks that way that you have not had a brokenness of heart? When it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Have you been confronted by the lack of purity in your own heart? When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you seen anything indicating that in your life you have not valued the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and hungered and thirsted for it? The first step of obedience is a step of humbling yourself or myself and crying out to the Lord Jesus, this is what you say, this is how I find myself, Lord. Work in me in such a way that I cannot, I can't get deep down in my heart, but you can. You can change me. You can make me fit for your kingdom. I cannot. Lord, work as only you can work. Do whatever it takes to fit me for your kingdom. That's a heart that eagerly wants the work of Jesus done in his or her life. That's the heart that will see the Lord Jesus working in him or her to obey. See, it works both ways. If you don't have a brokenness in your own life, recognizing your great need of the Lord Jesus' grace, then all your obedience will come as a means just of earning that grace, which it can never be earned. You and I need to build on the right foundation. And I want to go to the second point now. And I want to quickly talk about the storm that you and I will face because in some ways, we won't know what we're building on until we are pressured and feel some things breaking in our lives and be exposed for what we are. And point two, everyone will face the storm. You know, the audience listening to Jesus would have been aware of how people built homes in their part of the world. There were many dry riverbeds that for the majority of the year in Israel would have been hardened ground. And you could have picked any number of places to pick and build your house. However, twice a year, the early rains and then the later rains would come and would inundate that dry ground with water until the whole area began to flood. Those storms could be severe, especially around the Sea of Galilee. And the people would have heard, right? There's a house that's being built here and a house that's being built here, and they both look the same, right? They're, they're both going up. And how do we know which one is on the rock and which one is on the sand? Jesus says, you won't know until the storm hits for everyone will face the storm. The foolish builder obviously was in a hurry. And if we think of it this way, in terms of Christianity, he wanted the benefits of Christianity, but he did not want to build on Christ. He didn't want to take the time it took to truly have Christ look at his heart or her heart, but in haste threw up a structure that did not stand the test of the storm. He found the benefits of Christianity, but not Christ. Initially, as I said, we can't see the foundation of those two houses, 
But the storm will come, and when it pounds on those two houses, the foundation will be revealed. So here's the reality of the storms. I think it comes in two ways. And the Bible speaks of both. Now, we can begin this way. Storms happen now. They, they truly do. Storms happen now in the form that everyone faces at some time or another. Cancer, death of a loved one, bankruptcy, loss of job or health or home. We may face wars still in our lifetime that involve us whether we want that or not. When you've been hit with a storm of that nature, how has your foundation held up for you so far? When you've been hit with a storm, when your life seems to be stripped away, is Jesus still there with you? When you've had things that you've depended on suddenly disappear, do you find that even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of struggle that you have to trust, that at the end of the day, you still turn to Jesus Amen. and you want to glorify him. That's the sign of a wise builder. I never had the privilege of meeting my wife's grandpa, Guthrie Croft. He died in the early 2000s due to the complications of Alzheimer's disease. Lauren tells me that there were really tough times for him when her usually gentle grandfather responded with confused anger and stubborn strength when he just couldn't understand what was going on. Alzheimer's was a storm that rocked his entire life and the lives of his loved ones. But he knew Jesus Christ and had repented and come to Christ for salvation. And when he had to move into a, a full-time care home, a care facility towards the end of his life, my wife and her family would visit regularly. And on one of those occasions, when Lauren visited, she was approached by a man who worked in that home as one of the caregivers. He asked her if her grandfather was a preacher before he came there. And she replied, no. He'd really been an insurance salesman ever since he returned from World War II. The man shared with Lauren that earlier that week, her grandfather had struck up a conversation with his own reflection in a window. And while that is a sad part of the story, the bright ray of sunlight in that storm was what her grandpa said to himself, thinking it was an unbelieving friend who came to visit. Thinking he had a captive audience, Guthrie preached the gospel. And the worker told Lauren that as he listened in on Guthrie's message, the words convicted him and ministered to his needs. As my wife shared that story with me several years ago now, it's stuck in my head as an important truth. And it's this. You and I will be hit by storms in life. And some of those might just affect our health in life-altering ways, even our minds. But I learned this about Guthrie. He trusted Jesus with his life, and Jesus never let him go, even when his mind became more and more troubled. And friend, you today may not be in a storm that has taken your mind, maybe it has taken your health, or a dependency that you had on someone who has abandoned you, but Jesus promises not that we will never be protected, 
sorry, let me put it this way. Jesus has promised not that we will be saved from the storm, but he has promised that as you go through the storm, he will be your rock. The wise person humbly receives that and turns to the Lord in faith. Let me return a moment to California. As I said a moment ago, there are many of you here that would say, I'm glad to be in Tennessee. And truth be told, so am I. I would rather be here in the mountains than over in a place where floodwaters can come in from the ocean and wipe me out. But even if that storm can't reach us here, there is one storm that you and I will not be able to avoid. And that is ultimately the storm of judgment. When Jesus was talking about this storm, I want to admit he wasn't talking specifically about cancer or loss of job. I mean, those things, as bad as they are, are distant second to the primary risk of losing your soul in hell. Jeremiah 23 verses 19 to 20 says, behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. Living in the latter days, I, I can see that the storm is getting closer. Imagine standing before the Lord Jesus someday as the righteous judge of the universe. To some, he has already said, depart from me. I never knew you. And they will enter into an eternity of suffering in hell, separated from Jesus. The storm has exposed them. They benefited from Christianity, but did not hold fast to Christ. And then you approach his kingly throne and he asks you, why should you come into my kingdom? Could you say, I bring nothing with me, Lord. Everything is gone now. My house is all around me, shattered. But I find it's true what you told me. I'm still on the rock. I'm standing here, and Lord, you're the only reason that I can come into your kingdom. Now, in the final point, friends, I want to bring some of this together and encourage you to build on the solid foundation. I want to ask you a question first. What are you building on? What are you building on? It's right to ask yourself that question this morning. You may even feel a bit unsettled by the words of Jesus this morning. Maybe even afraid. But that's all right. We can thank him for speaking the truth to us, especially when it makes us feel uncomfortable. If we were here on this earth to be comforted and consoled, then we would remain in our sin. Our natural default is that we would want someone to affirm us Jesus comes to love us in the best way possible, and that is to speak the truth to us. Even if it would make us feel extremely uncomfortable, 
even afraid. If you can acknowledge that Jesus has spoken to you this morning, but up to this point, you have heard words like this and walked away saying, this is too hard to figure out. I'll, I'll do it later. Recognize that's a foolish thing to do. Reckoning with him this morning, right now. Coming to him in faith. Pleading with him. Asking him to save you. And to expose if you are building your life on sand. This is what Jesus says just a few verses earlier in Matthew 7 that we can do. He says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you asked the Lord to work this out in you, to put you on solid rock? Have you sought him with all your heart and saying, I bring nothing Nothing. And what I've brought so far has done destruction to you, God, and to the people around me. Now I come and I just ask you, I seek of you. I knock on your door. God, I bring nothing. Save me. Jesus will honor that prayer. Because he says, whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And whoever knocks, the door will be opened for you. You don't have because you maybe don't ask. And you've been comfortable in the community of the church, but you may not yet have come to Christ. This is the day for you to come to Christ. And the second point, I want to talk about unreliable feelings. I want to say this. Feelings aren't a reliable guide to tell you which foundation you are on. I want to say that as a timid believer to maybe some other timid believers here. There may be people who can read this and you feel like a rock and nothing can hit you. You're never afraid. Nothing, nothing could phase you. God bless you. For the rest of us, there are some here who need the encouragement that I hope I can give now. I want to encourage the believer here today who feels the fear of the storm, whether that's a temporal storm or the final storm of the judgment someday. And I want to tell you this. If you're in a house that's being buffeted by a hurricane or a tornado, you're going to hear the creaks on your walls and the gusts of wind that hit your windows. And if you're not afraid, you're silly, right? It's a natural thing to feel fear. It's a natural thing to want to be protected and to not know what's coming. Again, Jesus didn't say that he would keep us from the storms. He said storms are coming whether you want them or not. And the final storm of judgment will come and there's nothing you can do about it. Sometimes you may feel fear. But Jesus doesn't promise you'll never feel afraid. I read this past week in the book of Exodus about the people who had the death angel. The Israelites were told the death angel is coming over each house tonight in Egypt. And you need to put the blood of a lamb on the doorway and then death will pass over your house. And I can imagine a lot of firstborn sons that night who saw their dads faithfully obey that command and put the blood on the posts of the doorway, and yet were inside shaking a bit at the threat of death passing over. And yet the Lord promises 
even in the midst of fear, even when sometimes we doubt, Jesus is still the rock that we stand on. He promises that after the storm would even rip your life apart, you will find him there. And it may be that you are there now. Don't give up. Don't rely on your feelings. Because why? In the final analysis, Christ is the sure foundation. I know we've talked here about obeying the words of Christ. That's what we build our lives on if we have come to him, the rock. Friends, the storm of judgment comes because of your sin and my sin. We deserve it. We deserve to feel the full effects of the wrath of God, to be lost in that storm forever. But Jesus, Jesus himself felt the full power of that storm as God poured his wrath down on his own beloved son on the cross. He was buried, but he rose from the dead, and now Jesus is forever the firm foundation for all who come to him. Therefore, all who come to Jesus now in repentance and faith can be sure that they are safe. No matter what happens to you, no storm can separate you from Christ. No matter what the storm is that comes. Do you hold on to that truth? And no matter what storm comes, commit today to build your life on Jesus Christ. To trust him and obey him. Jesus says you will be blessed in that because you have trusted him to do the biggest and most impossible thing to actually storm-proof your life. And for those who have not done so today, the way you survive the storm is to come to Jesus today. Amen. Don't wait. The storm of judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. God is a reality whether you see him at work now or not. He is actively on the move but you too can be protected and survive the storm if you would turn to Jesus Christ today. We're going to sing one final song. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And as the team comes now to help us prepare for that, I want you to rejoice in the truth of the words. But at the same time, if you find you're building on sand today, use this time before you go out to turn to the Lord to pray and receive him as your Lord, your Savior, your foundation today. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your words. They've come in power, and we pray that the words would now resonate in our hearts and that your spirit would apply them as you see fit. And Lord, I pray that anything I've said that would not have led people clearly to you, you would remove that and you would replace it with truth now. In the name of Jesus, I thank you and trust you. Amen. Amen.